Jesus is awesome. He's awesome. He's our life. His, his name means Savior because Jesus can save anyone from anything. The angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His name is his mission. Jesus came to tell the truth and rescue God's people from their impending death. The gospel is far, far from hate speech. It's love speech. The name of Jesus teaches us that some things are contrary to the will and law of God and people need rescued from them. The very name of Jesus teaches us that. Jesus came to save lives. Sin is serious. It's not trivial. It's not friendly. It's deadly. And Jesus came to do nothing but conquer it. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to diagnose and confront sin in order to save lives. Some repent and are saved. Praise the Lord for His mercy and grace. Some repent and are saved. Some grow cold and hardened. Now how do we know what to repent and turn from? How do we know what we as human beings are to reject? Well, Jesus lovingly told us in His Word, Jesus is explicit I don't think the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture is our problem. I think our problem is we don't like what we hear. When you have a friend or relative struggling with homosexuality or you yourself struggle, it's easy to ignore God's Word or to try to spin it. Capitulating is much easier than facing truth. See, facing truth, the truth of the gospel, means we all have to change. We all have to change. And change is uncomfortable. Following Jesus costs us something. As you'll see, Jesus neither accepted homosexuality, nor was He a homophobic hater. Jesus was the type of man that showed tender mercy to an adulteress. He threw no stone. Yet he told her explicitly, go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus never excuses sin. He never ignores it. Through the gospel, Jesus names Sin and offers himself as the only solution to that sin. Jesus didn't give his life for ambiguous judgment calls. He gave his life to pay for real and intelligible sin. Teaching people the gospel is helping them diagnose and confront their sin while loving them unconditionally in the process. That's how Christians should love the world. Loving discipleship is teaching people to observe all that Jesus commanded. We need to love people like Jesus does. It takes courage to teach someone the truth, especially when we need it just as much as they need it. 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we love Jesus, we must be fully committed to living out Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's a reason we do Bible study. There's a reason we memorize scripture. There's a reason we sit underneath the preaching of God's word. So that we may learn how not to uh, disgrace the name of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Let's ensure our hearts Know the word of Jesus so we can avoid sin altogether. Jesus has addressed homosexuality directly in his holy word. So let's get a handle on that. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? It's possible that Jesus spoke with Abraham in Genesis 18. And it's possible that Jesus destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. But definitely we know that God and two angels visited Abraham and Sarah. And God told Abraham the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great. And that their sin was very grave. The two angels headed to Sodom and Abraham and God. They kept talking. Abraham, if you know the story, pled for mercy for Sodom. And God said, okay, he'd spare the cities if 10, just 10 righteous men were found. Well, the two angels arrived and Lot kindly invited them to stay at his house. Genesis 19, verses 4 and 5 describe the scene. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may yada, yada, know them. A Hebrew euphemism for sex. Verses 6 through 8 confirm homosexuality was involved. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, "I, I beg you, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yada known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, as horrible and unthinkable as that action was for Lot to do, Lot offered his virgin daughters to placate the sexual desires of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his family were spared ultimately, but verse 24 gives it straight. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Verse 24 might be directly referring to Jesus. That could have been a Christophany at that moment. It's possible to think Jesus destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Either way, Jesus approved of the destruction of these cities. Now, the Bible gives several reasons why God destroyed the cities. And in my study, this totally straightened me out because I had some wrong thinking about this. Here's why. Several reasons that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Their grave sin, inhospitality, pride and contempt for the poor. But there was another reason among all the rest. And it was sexual immorality. 
2 Peter 2, 6 and 7 allude to this, but Jude 5 through 7 offer helpful explanation. This is what Jude writes. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, pay attention to his, his, his word, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, I include verse 5 to show you that Jesus delivered Israel out of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery, and that Jesus killed unbelievers. You know what? It's just hitting me now. The kids. The kids. Were the kids taken out? Okay. All right. They were. All right. I saw, I saw Oh, man. Made a mistake. All right. Kids, glad they're not here because it's going to get interesting. Um, if it hasn't already. Jesus, uh, Jesus, the point of sharing verse 5 is that Jesus was active in the Old Testament. He was active. He was a deliverer in the Old Testament and that Jesus takes sin seriously. Jude 6 continues, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under a gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled against God, and Jude said that they gave themselves over to flagrant sexual immorality. Jude said they pursued unnatural desire, which is four Greek words, meaning to go after strange flesh. They went after flesh that was other than it should be. Now, some say that Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was not homosexuality, but their desire to rape. But Jude 7 makes three things clear. Number one, homosexuality in general is an unnatural desire, a going after strange flesh, according to Jude. Number two, homosexuality is categorized as flagrant immorality. And number three, homosexuality was among the very grave sins and reasons Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by the Trinity. Another question why do some parts of the Old Testament law still apply today, but others do not? Many professing Christians who support homosexuality make an argument that goes something like this. To condemn homosexuality, you need to use parts of the Bible like Leviticus, which no one obeys anymore. And at the surface, that seems like an excellent argument if you've read Leviticus. The argument suggests that a prohibition of homosexuality is still being enforced while other commands are not. And so they say that's unfair and we should justify homosexuality. And that is partly true. Not everything in Leviticus is still required, but some things are. We can now wear a cotton and polyester blend. The Jews couldn't do that before. But love for our neighbor has always and will always be required. And Leviticus talks about that. We can now eat bacon. Yes! Three cheers for bacon. It makes everything better. But we shouldn't steal the bacon. Christian apologist Matt Slick helps us out here. 
He distinguishes between three divisions of the law in the Old Testament, civil, ceremonial, and moral. The civil law expired with the dissolution of Israel's theocratic government. Uh, So that's why we no longer stone homosexuals. The ceremonial law expired upon fulfillment of the priestly work of Christ. That's why animal sacrifices and ceremonial washings are no longer necessary for the Christian. Jesus fulfilled that. But God's moral law transcends the ceremonial and civil law. And the moral law still applies. Homosexuality is prohibited in Scripture because it's part of God's moral law and fails to conform to the standard of holy marriage and sex established by God prior to Him giving the Mosaic law. And it is equally prohibited in the New Testament as we'll see a little bit later. Leviticus 18.22 says this, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That's as clear as it can get, folks. Leviticus 20.13 reiterates that. Now, the, the question is, does that still hold for today? Does that still hold for today? If we say homosexuality was part of the civil or ceremonial law that has passed away, been fulfilled, and is now acceptable, we must also apply that same logic for the rest of Leviticus 18 and 20, which I don't think anyone wants to do. I don't hear many people advocating the rest of Leviticus 18 and 20 as being permissible in American culture. Here's what the logic applied to the rest of that passage also permits. Having sex with your close relatives, your dad, your mom, stepmom, sister, step-siblings, grandchildren, aunt, uncle, in-laws, your neighbor's wife, and more. It would actually permit child sacrifice, which ironically has been applauded in America for years. And we can't forget bestiality. The logic which exempts homosexuality would naturally exempt all the other abominations listed in Leviticus 18 and 20. I'm not saying that those who support homosexuality would use that logic to justify all the other things. I'm saying that's what their logic does. If the sexual ethic described in detail in Leviticus 18 and 20 is not part of God's moral law and therefore is no longer valid, upon what then do we establish our sexual ethic? Does God say no to anything sexual is a better question. Peter Singer is an Australian moral philosopher and professor of bioethics at Princeton University. This is what America would consider one of our finest institutions. Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He's an atheist. He's intelligent. He's published. He's academically famous. Peter Singer wrote this, quote, My colleague Helga Kusa and I suggest that a period of 28 days after birth might be allowed before an infant is accepted as having the same right to life as others. It's coming out of Princeton. All the while, Peter Singer strongly advocates animal rights and strongly affirms bestiality. When there is no absolute truth, unrestrained and brutish immorality reign. 
In Massachusetts, there is a lesbian thruple, or three women that consider themselves married and committed to what they call polyfidelity. That's not a word, by the way, they made it up. I don't know if it was them that made it up or someone else. My point is this. The same logic used to justify homosexuality opens the door to any form of sexual immorality. God's moral law still applies to our sexuality. The Old Testament never, at any place in any verse, permits homosexuality. God never blessed it. He only condemned it. Now, many will decry, okay, the Old Testament fulfilled, not really applicable today. It's New Testament. All right, well, does the New Testament speak favorably about homosexuality? Does the Old Testament, or the New Testament rather, affirm or reject the Old Testament's view of homosexuality? That's a a valid and important question. The New Testament confirms the design and definition of marriage and sex as inaugurated in Genesis 1 and 2, and it unquestionably, at every turn, opposes homosexuality. Romans 1, 21 through 26 addresses homosexuality directly. Listen very carefully to what is happening as Paul describes this scene. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. They preferred a lie to God's truth. Idolatry clouded their thinking. Because of idolatry, God gave them up to their lusts, to their uncontrolled, shameful sexual cravings. They began to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And verse 26 explains... For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Paul was overtly describing lesbianism. He continued in verses 27 and 28. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Natural relations with women refers to marital sex, something defined by Holy Scripture years before Rome. Men ignored God and did the unthinkable. And when Paul wrote consumed with passion and shameless acts, he was contrasting all homosexual activity with what is natural inside of marriage. 
Homosexuality is fundamentally perverse and a rejection of Jesus as all sin is. Understand this. People who struggle with homosexuality are no more deviant than anyone else struggling with sin. This really needs to sink in. Please be clear on this. We are all sexual deviants. There is none of us that is sexually straight. We're all sexually crooked. Every single person in here is a sinner and sexually crooked. A sexual deviant. By nature, we all need grace equally. The answer to our sexual sin is not seeking to justify our guilt, but to deal with it at the cross of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, Paul, he's hard on all of us. No one is exempt from his tough words. Listen to what he says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who is exempt from that? Jesus? Anyone else? I mean, we're all unrighteous, are we not? Can we agree on that? Without the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to us by faith, none of us gets to heaven. We are all born unrighteous. We are born needing Jesus desperately. And in verse 9, Paul unpacks the word unrighteous. This is what he writes. Do not be deceived, Paul says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Are you in that list? Guilty, I am in that list multiple times. All condemnable. None inheriting eternal life without the perfect righteousness of Jesus by faith credited to us. Be very careful not to ignore the other equal sins listed in these passages. All of us are in there. Paul used the term pornos or sexually immoral. It means someone who indulges in any unlawful sexual intercourse. Lawful meaning one man and one woman in marriage as designed and defined by God in Genesis 1 and 2. We're not picking on homosexuality because no one living in any kind of open sexual immorality will inherit the kingdom of God. This applies to all of us. If you look at American culture... There is, where do you even start with sexual sin? It's all over the place in all different ways, shapes, and forms. We are sexually broken in America, and we're all part of that problem. Then Paul used two Greek words which translated men who practice homosexuality. The first Greek word is malakoi, malakoi, which describes the passive partner in homosexual intercourse. One Greek dictionary defines malakoi like this. Figuratively, in a bad sense of men, effeminate, unmanly, especially of a man or boy who submits his body to homosexual lewdness. It is very clear what Paul has in mind with the use of that word. The second word Paul uses is arsenikoitai. 
a compound word of arsane, meaning male, and koite, meaning a bed, or euphemistically, sexual intercourse. It means a homosexual. And when it's used with malakoi, which in this case it is, it most likely refers to the active male partner in homosexual intercourse. By these words, careful words, it is obvious that Paul is referring to men engaged in homosexual activity. But don't miss the gospel, the beautiful gospel in verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some Corinthians were struggling openly with homosexuality. But they were washed and they were sanctified and they were justified by the Spirit in the name of Jesus. They changed. Macklemore's song, if this makes any sense to you, Macklemore was wrong. His song is evil because it's not true. Sexually broken people heal because Jesus changes them. Anyone who lives in their sin will perish forever. That's true for any sin. That's why this topic is so serious because anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ for a new start, for a new life, will enjoy God forever in heaven no matter what his sin looked like. Do you believe this gospel? Do you believe that God can redeem anyone from any sin? Think of the worst possible thing that you can imagine. Can God redeem from that? I say yes, and the gospel says yes. The only thing God doesn't for, uh, forgive is to cons- just persist in unbelief and willful sin till the end and die. Then you didn't have Jesus. 1 Timothy 1, 19, or 9 rather, through 11 explains Jesus' view even further. Paul writes, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. That's us. God's law is for all of us. By nature, we are all ungodly sinners, unholy and profane. We are all born with an equal propensity to sin, all equally desperate for God's grace. In verse 10, Paul uses pornos again, or the grab bag for sexual sin, and then uses arsenikoitai, or a practicing homosexual man again. Then Paul says all sexual immorality and homosexuality is, and this is very interesting, contrary to sound doctrine. Contrary to sound doctrine. Isn't that interesting? Acceptance of homosexuality and other sexual sins stems stems from anemic and unhealthy doctrine and theology. Find a professing Christian who applauds homosexuality and you'll very predictably find unorthodox and irregular views of God, man, sin, the gospel, scripture, and other essential aspects of theology. The way we live is intimately linked with the health of our doctrine and theology, what we believe, our belief system, our worldview. Every letter of the Bible is from Jesus. Every letter is read. But let's assume for a moment red letter thinking. Let's just think only Gospels 
Whatever's in red is what is truly from Jesus. Okay? Is it true that Jesus never mentioned homosexuality? Because there's a lot of people saying he never mentioned it. So is that true? Do the Gospels, Jesus himself in the Gospels, address that? Did Jesus mention homosexuality in the Gospels? Would it surprise you to find Jesus actually taught on homosexuality? It was implicit in his teachings. Jesus didn't use the words malakoi or asenakoitai like Paul did. He didn't expressly label homosexuality an abomination, even though he strongly affirmed Leviticus and marriage and sex as God designed and defined it. But Jesus did mention homosexuality indirectly. In the Gospels, Jesus used the word porneia. Porneia, five times, seven times in Revelation. So let's look at, the two, at, at two of the, the five instances. Matthew 15, 18 through 20. Jesus says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus said porneia, sexual immorality, defiles a person. Now let's understand that Greek word. One Greek dictionary defines porneia as generally every kind of extramarital, unlawful, or unnatural sexual intercourse. Another dictionary defines porneia like this, to engage in sexual immorality of any kind. So porneia is a broad term that encompasses any sexual activity outside of biblical marriage. By using porneia, Jesus was implicitly addressing homosexuality and his hearers would have heard homosexuality as part of the whole grab bag of sexual immorality or porneia. Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi that upheld the inspiration and authority of the Old Testament law. Therefore, he would have defined sexual morality or lawfulness or natural sexual activity as one man and one woman having sex in the context of their marriage. That's how Jesus understood marriage and sex. And Jesus would have understood sexual immorality, unlawfulness, or unnatural sexual activity as anything outside of marriage. Anything defined by Leviticus 18 and 20 in particular is what Jesus would have embraced as a sexual ethic. Jesus' view of marriage and sex is extremely important in determining what he includes in sexual immorality. So prostitution, incest, bestiality, adultery, orgies, premarital sex, homosexuality, pornography and masturbation, and any sexual activity outside of marriage would have all been considered porneia by Jesus and any sexual immorality defiles a person because it comes from a deviant heart. Another place Jesus used porneia is Mark 7, 20 through 22. Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, that's porneia, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit. And then Jesus adds sensuality. The Greek word is aselgia, which means living without any moral restraint, especially indecent and outrageous sexual behavior. Now, how do we know what indecent and outrageous sexual behavior is? He's saying that's out of line, but how would Jesus have understood that? For Jesus, it was anything outside of Genesis 1 and 2 and the entire sexual ethic of the Old Testament. That was, what, that was Jesus' standard of truth. There is simply no honest way around what Jesus taught and believed about sexuality. You, you, just, you can't be faithful to the Scripture and argue argue in favor of all these sexual sins. Jesus taught absolutely, very clearly, sexual boundaries, limits. And his limits are well-defined and evident in Scripture. These aren't hidden. They're right there on the surface. Now, I will say this. It's not a ton of passages. Sexual immorality is. That's a lot of places. But specifically regarding homosexuality, there's a couple of passages. But when the Bible deals with them, they're absolutely clear. You have to be creative to miss it. The New Testament never mentions homosexuality in favorable terms. God never blessed it. He only condemned it. Jesus' view of homosexuality is so conclusive, so clear, and so categorical that any attempt to use the Bible to justify uh, homosexuality is simply unfaithful and intellectually dishonest scholarship. Theologically, doctrinally, grammatically, historically, sociologically, and scientifically. Perhaps one could defend homosexuality from an atheist or an agnostic or even a religious perspective, but not from an honest, orthodox, historical, grammatical perspective of the Bible. It just can't be done. So to accept homosexuality, you need to either patently reject the definitive teaching of Jesus or twist it. Now I'll leave you with two important points. The first is theological, and the second is sociological. Here's the theological point. Sex is one way that we glorify God. So it's really, really important. Jesus inspired the Bible, and the Bible gives a strong, positive definition of marriage and sex that's consistent throughout the entire Bible. The Bible also deliberately and openly prohibits homosexuality and sexual immorality of any other kind. In the Gospels, Jesus taught against sexual immorality of any kind. Thousands of years of history and sociology confirm the Bible's definition of marriage. The redefinition of marriage is totally a modern concept. I think within probably the past 20 years. Because outside of 20 years ago, no nation on the face of planet Earth had legalized same-sex marriage. Two questions. Do you believe Jesus made his view clear to us? From what you know about Jesus' view, do you believe homosexuality pleases him? That he would say that it glorifies His Father, that it glorifies Him, that it glorifies the Holy Spirit. Are you absolutely confident that the Bible, His Word, Jesus' Word, teaches that homosexuality is blessed 
and beautiful before God. Homosexuality, my friends, is not even the central issue. It's not even the most important issue out of all of this. I believe it's more foundational. People hear Jesus, but his views are too radical, too narrow. So they either ignore him or they change him. Jesus did say this, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. The way is hard. It's tough. It's difficult. That leads to life. And those who find it are few. Our culture's path is wide open, folks. It, it, it allows all kinds of stuff. But it leads to destruction. And that's why we must be so serious and loving to contend for the truth. People find the narrow way oppressive. They find it claustrophobic. It cramps my style. Burdensome evil, even. When in reality, Jesus is freedom. He's true freedom. We can't forget what Paul said to young Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Oh, be patient, Timothy. Be patient when people listen. And teach people, Timothy. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching or what could be called healthy doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions or lusts and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? They pinned us. Before America ever existed, they had us. Paul's right. You know what? If you don't like the Bible, you can go in Lancaster County to a bunch of churches that will say something completely different and will affirm whatever, almost anything that you, you probably want to do. So it's not, it's not difficult to find a teacher. So we must be very, very careful that our ears aren't itching so that we can surround ourselves with people that just affirm our own lusts and passions. We all need to be careful about that. The second point I have for you is sociological. Do we really care what the homosexual lifestyle does to people? Have we tried to understand the consequences of homosexuality even a little bit? Besides external ridicule and rejection, which I think is flat-out evil faced by many who struggle with homosexuality. The church has beat them up. Good grief, we've been so wrong with how we've handled this issue. They also carry internal guilt and shame for the lifestyle they live. Sin shames all of us from the inside out. Did you know that the average male engaged in homosexual behavior has hundreds of partners in a lifetime? In the Bell and Weinberg study, 43% of white men engaged in homosexual behavior had 500 or more partners, and 28% had 1,000 or more. How does that level of sexual promiscuity impact a person's well-being and their happiness? According to AIDS.gov, the population group most profoundly impacted by HIV is gay and bisexual men. The CDC labels it epidemic 
The CDC reports that while homosexual men make up only a very small percentage of the male population, around 4%, men who have sex with men account for over three quarters of all new HIV infections and nearly two-thirds of all new infections. LGBT teens and young adults have one of the highest rates of suicide attempts, more than their straight peers. Sexual sin breaks people. It shatters people. It ruins lives. It ruins marriages. It ruins families. It sends people to the hospital. In some cases, it kills people. Homosexuality, among a myriad of other sexual sins, breaks people down. There is only one thing, only one thing that can fix all of our sexual brokenness, and His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. It's the gospel that can heal our brokenness. That's the only hope we have. His grace can reach into the deepest, darkest, most despondent places and redeem people on the spot, change their lives forever, giving them hope and peace and well-being and joy that is unrivaled by anything else experienced in culture. No one is beyond the saving grace of God. No sin is too horrific to be forgiven through repentance and faith in Christ. We must love people enough, Jerusalem church, to tell them the dangers of sin and the hope found only in Jesus Christ. And I've thought about this. Just about the worst thing I could think of in the sexual arena is someone who molests kids. And as I think about that, I ask the question, can God reach into that mess that destroys people and forgive that person of that horrendous? You know what my answer is? You better believe that the forgiveness of Christ can wash over that person and give them new life and a new beginning and they will be in heaven like the rest of us because they trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I believe the gospel is that powerful. Now, there might be repercussions naturally for things like that. Some wise things you have to put in place that are just going to be ugly. But that doesn't prevent anybody from heaven when they turn to Jesus. Contending for the truth, for the gospel, is no easy task in a culture that is hostile to the real Jesus. Yeah, they like this feathery, nice Something Jesus, but he's not the real Jesus who kills and destroys and who judges sin and who forgives every last sin if you trust him. Jesus is power. Jesus is awesome. And so next week, we're going to devote all of our time to understanding how we as followers of Jesus should respond to homosexuality and other sexual sins. It's going to be a very different sermon. It's going to be kind of constructed weirdly. We're just going to answer some questions about how we as a church should handle homosexuality in our own lives and other people's lives and all sexual sin, all sin in general. We're going to get really practical next week. So be sure to tune in because I think some questions that are probably still hanging out there will be answered for you next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good. You are uh, a, a gracious God, a powerful God, a forgiving God. And it is amazing. I, I'm convicted this morning because I've struggled with sexual sin. 
We're all sexually immoral to one degree or another. We all need grace in this area of our lives. America is overrun with sexual sin. And God, we want to repent. We want to turn to you and plead for your mercy that you don't destroy our culture. Because God, it just sure looks like it's coming. And so God, I just ask that if someone is here who really struggles deeply with homosexuality, or if someone is listening to this sermon online that struggles deeply with homosexuality, I pray that they, they would just understand that what the Bible says, they're not alone. They're not somehow unique in some side category of sinner. We're all in it together. We all need grace. We're all sexually broken. But I pray that whoever is listening to this, wherever they are in their sexual brokenness, that they will be convicted of their sexual sin. That they wouldn't try to justify it, but they would flee to the cross, flee to the gospel to find their solace and hope and joy because sexual brokenness and sin will not make us happy. It won't save us. It's powerless to do what we think it will do for us. So God guard us from chasing after sin. Just help us to be humble. To fall down at the foot of the cross and to plead for your forgiveness. God, we don't want to be proud and arrogant saying, I have no sin. That's not sin. I can do that if I want. We don't want to be like that, God. Humble us all. Help us to follow Jesus. To love Jesus most. Teach me your way. Oh, Lord, teach me your way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Certainly uh, not an easy sermon, I know that, because I think it does more than convict on the issue of homosexuality. I think it goes a lot broader than that into all of our sin. And so what I want to sing together as we conclude the service here is